Francis Bacon once said, the job of the artist is to deepen the mystery. Well, when it comes to the work of my guest today on the program, the mystery is deepened. And the cool thing is, as deep as it gets and as dark as the tunnels it dives down may be, you can't help but follow. There's no mystery to that. It's pretty simple. The work is just that good. I'm Alex Green. And this, by the way, not good, great. Not great, majestic. Not majestic, unreasonably brilliant. It's the truth, and you're about to find out who's responsible for such mysterious and powerful work. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. guest today on the program, Sandy Bell. Let me tell you a little bit about Sandy Bell. Well, I can't just tell you a little bit about Sandy Bell. I want to tell you a lot because her work is so important to me and it's so powerful and so beautiful that to tell you a little bit seems like it's doing an injustice to the work itself. But I know we have a show to get to. So for the sake of time, I will be efficient. Well, I'm going to try to be efficient. Let me just give it a shot and let's see where we end up. So here's my let me tell you a little bit about Sandy Bell part. Here we go. Sandy Bell. All right. So the work of the Ohio-born Sandy Bell is pure magic. I guess by now I've tipped my hand and you're getting the feeling I'm a big admirer of what she does. Well, I am. But the work that I'm talking about, which is so effortless and beautiful, was hard fought. And the journey to get where we are today with Sandy's songs was fraught with some pretty heavy stuff. I'll let her tell you all about that. But along the way, she went west, as many do. And along the way, she found herself writing songs with Jeff Buckley, as many don't. 
She also fronted a band that was on the brink of some potential 90s glory before she ghosted them. And as she dug her heels into L.A. life, she was also battling deeply serious addiction issues and for a while slipped way off the grid and was living off Hollywood Boulevard and grappling with demons that were in a full-time flex of trying to destroy her. But they didn't. I'm speeding up the timeline, so Sandy's going to fill in those gaps, but I'll give you a little expurgated update of her biography. Moving to New York with her partner and producer Jeff Lipstein, Belle was revived, rejuvenated, and ready to become the artist that she was meant to be. Her first album, When I Leave Ohio, is a stone-cold stunner. It has all the stillness of a hopper painting and the raw loneliness of Nick Drake. The follow-up, Entelechi, which is a phrase borrowed from Aristotle, which simply means that which realizes or makes actual what is merely otherwise potential, is quite simply one of the best albums you're ever going to hear. Atmospheric, mesmeric, and emotive, Entelechi is a textured song cycle that explores devastation and darkness with the probing eye of a philosopher and the atmospheric lens of a filmmaker. In other words, think David Lynch collaborating with Plato on music that sounds like Karen Dalton fronting the bad seeds. It's regenerative, it's restorative, it's terrifying, it's comforting, and it's powered by an enormous heart that beats with hope. In her career, Sandy has collaborated with everyone from Rachel Yamagata to Bat for Lashes, and now she's collaborating with me, and you're about to hear it. So here we go, me and the fabulous Sandy Bell having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. sat around for so long because of the pandemic and it's so it's such a powerful record for me it's um you know and it's being received well that's great but being responsible to it is like I have no choice but to back it up with some of this social media presence and I took all my stuff off of Spotify in a rage for a while now I'm getting it back on it's like <laughs> so it's weird, but it's weird to advocate in this way. And I'm just now starting to engage in social media in a way I think that feels more aligned with who I am as um, a communicator, but I don't like it. You know, I don't like it. And I feel like I need to find a way to like it, to be with people, because this is what people apparently want. They want to connect with you in this way. And so I owe that to anybody who cares to listen. If this is, this is a part of what they, they feel that is important to them, I need to do that. So I need, I'm, I just feel like I'm constantly like having to rise to my own occasion, so to speak, you know, it's weird. Very you don't like it because it feels like it's a little bit invasive, a little performative, and also a post is almost graded. You know, if you if you post something that means something to you and nine people respond to it, it feels a little empty. Is it for those reasons or is it something else? 
I think for right now, it's just a very unnatural format for me. Like I can have conversations like this. I can speak to people from stage and I definitely can communicate via song and energetically, but to craft a message that's going to a bunch of people that are just like scrolling. And I myself am too. I just feel like it's a temporary engagement and it doesn't have the I don't experience it as having the depth of connectivity, but some people really, really um, use it as a means of for information. So I just I have to, I think part of it is generational. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just it's just not my my thing. But yeah, I do think I do think about how things are being received and critiqued, and that can start to tap into like self consciousness and ego and like all of that. But I also feel like, I guess this is what I'm really working with now that I'm thinking about it, is that there's kind of no place for that, you know, because if I'm here to live a life of trying to communicate the truth as I know it and experience it as an artist, then I really don't have to worry about what I'm saying because I should be living in integrity anyway. But it takes a minute, you know. To com- I don't think it's it's natural for me to communicate and also in written word like I don't I'm not a writer, you know, like that I'm a songwriter, but I'm not a writer writer. And I worry about grammar too. <laughs> don't worry about grammar. No one else seems to. Uh, you were mentioning that you have had to go back to Ohio mm-hmm. from New York. Mm-hmm. Your initial trajectory was to leave Ohio. Right? Yeah, that was, that was the thing to do. Yeah. Um, when you look back on that, do you feel that took a kind of bravery that you always knew that you had, or did you have to gather some strength for that exodus? And you didn't go to New York first, or did you go to LA first? I went to Los Angeles first. I don't think that it took too much courage, to be honest. I think it was more of a fleeing for survival in a way, you know, I felt that I was going to be swallowed up by Ohio and possibly just become very angry. Um, I didn't feel like I fit in. I was also really young, you know, and, and I had a rebellious enthusiasm, um, that was great fuel for me to just leave rapidly. It was a quick decision. I wanted to, make music in another geography. I was, there certainly were places in Ohio that I could create with other musicians, something of like, I was feeling a little bit more subculture at the time. Um, But mostly at that time, it was like in the eighties and it was a lot of like cover bands. And, you know, if you wanted to play in a bar, you had to play like at least two sets of like cover top 40 cover hits, you know, like lover boy and stuff like that. And I, I did it a little bit here and there, but I, I just, I felt so out of place. It turns out that I felt out of place in Los Angeles too. <laughs> it turns out that like, <laughs> it didn't yeah. really matter. That adds up. Yeah. But, um, but I, it was the right thing for me. I think I had to, I had to do something drastic to kind of find out who I was. And that took a minute. It's still taken a minute. 
Yeah, I mean, I think about Ohio and I think about the the cultural legacy from a rock and roll standpoint. Yeah. Um, and there there were plenty of great people and yeah. idiosyncratic people. I mean, David Thomas of Per Ubu to me is like, yeah. there's no one cooler and weirder and greater. Robert yeah. Pollard of Got It By Voices. So, I mean, were you aware of the sort of musical legacy of the state or did you feel sort of that you were operating alone in that sort of um, not fitting in feeling? It's such a good question. I really wasn't at the time. I think I was such, like I was in such a cloud of family drama and trauma. And um, I was, I mean, I also just had this like kind of victim mentality where it was a little bit of like a a false um superhero cape you know like you don't fucking understand me like I'm you know I gotta get out of here and so there's a lot of that and and I think like if I had been a more stable (laughs) uh healthier person I might have been able to look around and see what was actually there in terms of legacy or in the soil or like sought out those kinds of relationships but I was just I was just causing problems everywhere I went. I was also, you know, I had some addiction stuff. So I was in my own universe completely. And it really wasn't until I left. I mean, there were the obvious ones like Chrissy Hine and stuff, but like I, there, I just, it wasn't until I left that I really started to see like, oh God, there's a lot of good things there in Ohio. Even now when I go back, I'm like, man, it's beautiful here. Like, it's so, it's so pretty, but like, I didn't, I didn't experience it that way. I was just internally um my landscape was so rugged that it really didn't matter you know what was outside of me it's the old um never knew my hometown till i saw it from far away that's right idea um addiction started i i wasn't sure if addiction started in la but or it had already started in ohio oh man i think it started yeah, maybe even before I got here. I'm not sure because like my earliest memories are extremely addictive, you know, even with like sugar and chocolate and things like that. But it it definitely started in high school really bad. Like it was, yeah, I don't I don't even remember graduating or things like that. Like I had a lot of blackouts, but I I had um there were people that kind of had their eye on me here and there, neighbors, teachers, you know. Um, so I never got too crazy. But when I went to Los Angeles, I think I felt very free. And therefore, I all bets were off, you know. So, yeah, it really, it propelled itself into a whole new beast. The stakes got a lot higher in L.A. I had access to a lot more things there, too. More things to be addicted to. Yeah. When you reverse engineer it and you think back, do you think like, well, you can see where that version of you was coming from? I mean, you know, did did you feel that it was sort of like, because some people are just sort of angry for no reason. They're just because they're angry because they're 17 and they feel weird. Um, Yeah. And we all felt that. But when you look at at your, at the reasons for what you were, you know, your rage or your, um, and your addiction, legitimate, I mean, you know, giving yourself a little bit of a break, you can see where that came from. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I think there's a genetic component 
Um, some can argue that, but if there is truth to that, or you subscribe to that idea, my lineage is peppered with alcoholism and addiction. So there's that. It showed itself in many ways of just complete unmanageability. So I have evidence of it there. And then um, in terms of, you know, without getting into a big sob story, but there was a lot of neglect and um, intense violence in my home growing up. And so I think I had really good reason to look for some way to cope, you know? There was also, I need to say this, since this is like an on-record conversation, that there was also an incredible amount of love. Mm -hmm. It just was people who were suffering themselves trying to raise children, you know? And in a way, just, I'm looking at a picture of my parents right now. I'm like, oh God. Um, <laughs> in a way, I just think generationally, you know, a lot of our dads were in the war or in a war or you know they were immigrants and you know there I mean there's so many good reasons for people to just take the edge off and it you know I think in the wrong hands with the right wrong set of circumstances it just turns into not a great recipe for raising kids a lot of kids I mean there were five of us so that's that's enough that's a lot. That's a lot of kids. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't hard to leave. No. Yeah. There's a picture of you. It's one of my favorite pictures. It's like one of my favorite rock and roll pictures of all time. Oh, God. Um, my three favorite rock and roll pictures are obviously uh, Paul from The Clash from London Calling, that iconic <laughs> picture, right? <laughs> then there's a They Might Be Giants picture, which is so punk rock, and it's of them <laughs> It's on one of the albums, one of the early albums, or just on the floor. And then uh, these are all tied for first. And then my favorite picture is of you. You're wearing that dress. I think you're holding a bottle of something and a and a cigarette. Mm -hmm. And you look like a beautiful mess. I think like, <laughs> you, like you look like so much trouble. <laughs> I was so much trouble. So much trouble. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's a beautiful picture because it's so raw and edgy and real. Um, but it, it looks like trouble. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I have a lot of love for her. I mean, I was trouble. I really, I just pushed everything as far as I could possibly push. And I pushed everybody away and people just kept trying to love me and I just kept pushing them away. You know, um, I was in a band out there and I had these bandmates who were like the healthiest, nicest, great musicians and they tried everything to protect me from myself and I just that's where that picture is from that's why I'm bringing it up like mm -hmm. that was that was the era there's also pictures of that same time where I have like a cast and I have like on my arm I have no idea why to this day I'm like well, I have no idea why the cast I have no idea. What? yeah wow. no idea yeah yeah, but it was, I mean, it was a beautiful time because I went to the edge of my life in a way, you know, I, I went as far as I could before falling off the edge. And there was this, I don't know what made me think of this, but there was this 
hole in Hollywood Boulevard. I don't know what they were building. Like, um, it feels like it was too early to be building the subway, but there was this giant hole in Hollywood Boulevard and there were all these ropes and everything you couldn't get. And I was constantly trying to look down this hole. <laughs> and the construction guys were like, ma'am, please, miss, you've got to step back. I'm like, please just let me look one more time. I, just, I don't know what I was looking for, but I was obsessed with it. And I think it was just kind of my own abyss. You know, I wanted to see if I could mm. see myself like falling or in the bottom or something. Yeah. Self-destruction is like, or self-loathing, I should say, is a very powerful thing. Like when you try to annihilate yourself, you know? And you, you guys were signed to a, to a major or were you signed? We were, we were on the precipice of very big things. Yeah. And I just disappeared. Like I eventually, we went back for a reunion and my husband, Jeff, who I didn't meet until, you know, many years later, um, who I, I had never really told him all these stories. I just, I had kind of left it behind. And the bass player got in touch with Jeff and said, you don't know me, but I used to play music with Sandy and we're doing a reunion and I, I want you guys to come back. And, you know, and Jeff's like, we're there without even talking to me. He's like, oh, we're there. So we went back to California and they were, it was just funny just sitting there watching them all tell Jeff all these stories, you know, that I had even forgotten. And they said, yeah, we were doing a showcase and, you know, showtime was eight o'clock. We had sound check and that she just never showed up again. And I never showed up again. And this was years of like, we had written over a hundred songs. We were really tight. We were, we worked really hard. And I just, I don't know, right before things get good, I like to disappear. <laughs> so you ghosted your band. Yeah. I I also broke their hearts, which is really, it's, I guess that's part of ghosting, but it was, it was really brutal. Where did you go? I went, I mean, literally I went into isolation. Um, figuratively, I went into the dark night of the soul, mm -hmm. you know, for many years, honestly. And I jumped around in Los Angeles. I lived with different people. Um, there were really good people that would take me in. There were people who didn't have my best interests at heart who would take me in. Um, I willingly went everywhere, anywhere there was a roof, I would go. And then there were periods on and off where it was just, you know, street time. It was Hollywood Boulevard and, you know, it was different then, but it was, um, I don't know. The interesting thing is that I don't remember it as being horrible. Although I know it was, I mm -hmm. think I just built protections to keep myself from feeling that. Um, but there was a sense of, I don't have to answer to anybody. I don't have to, I don't owe anybody anything. This is my life. It was very selfish. Like I didn't realize how many people I was hurting, but if you had asked me at that time, I just didn't think anybody cared about me. I like they, they could tell me all day, but I could not let it in. So 
I was just in a self-destructive mode. And I also had this thing where I thought I was like invisible, which I still kind of have. I'll be like surprised when I see myself. It's a weird sensation. Like I'll catch myself like washing dishes and singing or something. And, and I'll say, oh, wait, who's that? And I wait, oh, you're here. Like it's it's like, I guess some folks would call it extreme dissociation. <laughs> But I don't think it's just that. I think I, I have mastered a way in my own psyche to pretend I'm not here mm -hmm. just in case it hurts to be here. It's like a quick escape hatch or something in my imagination. It's gotten a lot, a lot better. And I'm functional now. I mean, I'm so functional. I can work with people and I have a great marriage and I have great friends and I show up for people. And, and I, you know, even then, like there were periods of time where, I mean, I was able to perform. I've always been able to perform, which is such a weird thing to me. I know it's, but in a way it makes sense. I think this is part of the thing kind of circling back to social media because like on stage, you have something of like a built-in delineation between you and the audience. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, I think even more so back then, it was just very distinct. You were on stage and there was an audience. And I felt very safe in that way, you know? And I think the right now things are so close, like people, like we played a club in New York City a couple of weeks ago and I'd never been there before. And the stage was like three inches high and the audience, I was like, oh my God, we're right on, we're sitting with each other, you know, but I'm kind of liking it. Like I'm getting more now I'm in a place where I'm like, oh, this is really beautiful. Like kind of now I want everybody on stage with me and like, you know, it's a different vibe. But back then I think it was a mechanism for safety somehow. Were, do you remember being, feeling invisible as a little girl? Was that something that started when you were a child? Yeah, I, it was survival for sure. Mm -hmm. It made sense. I was the youngest. I saw what was going on to my older siblings and I was like, oh, I know how to do this. I know how to stay safe. Like just, yeah. Everything has psychoanalytical origin, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> and it really does. It's also interesting that you were looking for, it's like you went West and you're looking for love and success both of which you wouldn't have trusted anyway. Exactly. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. I didn't trust anything or anybody. Yeah. I was also looking to, and I think this is a common thing too, where you kind of look to confirm your wound, you know, or really like absolutely reinforce the thing that you inherently know, which is that I am unlovable and I have abandonment issues and I'm going to make sure everybody abandons me and I abandoned myself and, you know, just to get full punctuation on that original story. <laughs> it's crazy, but in a way we have to do it to like retrace our steps and maybe, you know, come up with a different outcome, which is, I think where I'm at now, which is changing the narrative in real time 
changing the real story, not just the narrative, but changing the real story of how this ends. Cause I, I don't want to do that anymore. No. And I, and I think there's a really great line in the Smith song where, where Morrissey says the low life has lost its appeal. Yeah, totally. And, right. And I wonder, was there a moment where you'd had enough of that version of yourself? Yeah. The sad thing is for me, like when I look back, I had had enough years prior to it ending. You know, I just was so like in the loop of it. I could not, the groundhog dayness of it, I couldn't get out of it. Mm. I tried, I tried multiple hospitals, multiple like methadone programs. And um, I was on government studies for drugs they use now for addicts. Like I was like one of the rats, you know? Um, Yeah, I did. I tried all these things and I, I tried witchcraft and I tried psychics and, um, you know, kind not a full engagement, but like testing out the waters of like a monastery and like things like that, you know, anything that might be the answer and it just, nothing would happen. But my, my moment of grace was, um, it was really metaphysical. Like it, it really, uh, it's sort of ineffable. It was just like a, I always say it was like, um, like a feather across my cheek that wasn't actually there, but like a noticing of something outside of a human experience that called to me, whether that was ancestral or God or planetary or imaginary, it's yet, I may never have that answer. But something spoke to me that penetrated the membrane of what I experienced as my own human mind, brain, and um, and I heeded the call somehow. You know, it was so distinct and so different, and it started me on a trajectory of intense um, curiosity for all things otherworldly but based in um a clear-headedness a clear-heartedness a sober mind a sober heart a sober life and um yeah so it was it wasn't overnight but it it definitely started me and I'm still on it I've been clean for 24 years which Mm. is amazing and I honestly Every day, I'm more and more interested in being more connected to a life that is not hazy. You know, I seek clarity um, and not from a place of puritanical intent, but mostly because I'm just fascinated by it. And the evidence I've collected thus far in this seeking is so magnificent and also so challenging to translate which is where I think the music is so powerful for me because I become very um, passionate about evoking this kind of well not this kind a kind of wonder in the listener so that they may have their own if they want to, they may just like the song, but they might have their own interest in 
finding a curiosity within themselves. And that's what's so cool about this, this album to me, because it, it came from this place without me conceptualizing that or saying like, I'm going to, I want to wake up the listener, you know, like none of it is yeah. literal. None of it is like punch you in the face, like get clear. <laughs> it's, it's more of like um, a world that you enter. And that was a surprise to me as it's, as the song started to come through, I became very excited about it because I knew that it, I mean, this record is so different from when I leave Ohio. I was surprised by it. And I, I had to learn how to play it. I had to learn how to write it. I had to learn how to sing it. I had to learn about what it meant. It was such a force and it became clear to me that it is just that it's this awakening of wonder within myself. That's why I call it entelechy. And so the music is, is like your, it's your way of explaining, right? It's almost like it works as a kind of explanation of the thing that you can't really put into words. So the art is the link between the, the mysterious world and the, and the physical world that people are living in and discerning. So it's almost like it's the link between the external and the internal. Yes, I like that. And I, I think of it like my vehicle for transmission. Mm, right. Because if I if I try to explain these things to another person, I don't know their jam. Like I don't know their story. I don't know what's best for them. I know my story, but having these kinds of wonder this kind of wonder and curiosity come through in the music, it feels like that's something that I can transmit and how that's received. I mean, it's almost as basic as a frequency in a way, you know, like I deliver a frequency and how that's received is really up to the recipient, what they're open to, what they want or what their own path is all about. So it's kind of a, a cool experiment in a way, you know? Yeah, it's like your work is done. Then it's out there in the universe and then people pick up on it or they don't, right? It's like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not for everybody. That's for sure. So we'll see. I mean, I've had experiences with just like experimenting with these songs at, on just a few live shows that we've done. It's only recently. Well, I did the tour with um, opening for Rachel Yamagata last fall and I played some of them solo but they're very lush productions how strange rachel yamagata just texted me just now as i said her name that is so crazy we're so connected we are so connected i i told her we've gotten to the point where we don't even have to like talk anymore we just telepathically are talking but that's so fucking nuts um that's awesome so I, oh, she's so great so i but i i got to play around with these songs and it was funny because some people are like, huh? Because <laughs> it's not it's not a straight up storytelling kind of vibe. You know, there's a there's a little bit of an abstract journey to them. But we so we've been playing these live shows with a small band. We've done like four shows so far. And the last one we did and in rehearsal, I said to the guys, like, all you have to do is think of it like if I had to 
you know, like drill this down to one thing. It'd be just, we're running through the woods. Like we're just running through the woods. Occasionally we're going to stop, but like basically we're running through the woods. They're like, okay, fine. You know, some listen, some don't. And then we play the show like two weeks ago. It's a really weird show, but I won't get into that. Play the show. And the woman that was playing violin in the first band, she comes up to me and she says, don't take this the wrong way. And I was like, okay. It's always... She was amazing. She said, but I got this feeling like I was just like running through the woods and I was lost. And I was like, oh man, that's amazing. That's amazing. It made me so happy. And so, and then there were some people who were like, I don't get it, you know, <laughs> which is like totally fine. But the ones that say things like that, I'm like, okay, she, and the way she said it too, she said, she didn't talk about how I was singing or the performance. She said, I felt like I was running through the woods. And I was like, she had an experience. She had her own experience of that. And that made me so happy. I'm like, yeah, like somebody else, she saw herself running through the woods. That to me is the whole thing, you know? You got it. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. I always feel that like great art for me is the feeling that you are underwater, right? Mm. Like you're in this new, you're in this world and it seals mm -hmm. over you in this really beautiful way. Mm -hmm. um, I felt that way about Letterman in the early eighties. I felt like I was in this night world where weird shit would happen, which is yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, I feel that way um, when I listen to your music. I feel the yeah. way when I, when I read um, Salinger or Hemingway, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm immersed in that world. I'm in it. Oh um, yeah. And it's just magic. Whereas some art, I think um, the door it, there's, you can feel a draft and with mm -hmm. your stuff, you can't, you're, you're in it. Wow. Wow. Um, and it's just so beautiful and mysterious. And what's lovely about that is that the more you listen to it, the more familiar that world becomes. Mm -hmm. um, and you can sort of like start kind of decoding and familiarizing yourself with the mystery. That's the beauty of an underwater world. It, it starts to feel more homey than the actual world. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that, Alex. And also to think that we probably originated underwater. <laughs> yeah. By the way, in as we're talking, there's a leaf blower outside my window. Uh -oh. And I have tremendous noise sensitivity issues. So I don't know if you do. Do you? Oh, misophonia. Do you know what that is? No, is that a real thing? Oh, it's a thing. What it's, is it? it's, well, it translates to hatred of sound. Okay. And, um, and my husband's like, how can you have hatred of sound? You're a musician. I'm like, no, no. It's only certain sounds that it's basically, they think it's a version, forgive me, medical professionals, but they think it's a version of OCD where the brain just keeps looping and it can only hear that irritating sound. So I have it with, um, gum chewing, certain breathing, there's, it's a real thing. And it, it can um, activate a fight or flight sensation. Like I, you feel rage. I feel rage. Like when I hear it. Yeah. I don't want you to hear this leaf blower then, but it, I don't it, hear it. And the weird thing is the leaf blower probably wouldn't bother me, but if you were chewing gum, I'd have to ask you to, to spit it out. Really? Yeah. We, the story went on I felt so bad. We played Connecticut and then we played, then we all came home because it was like 
I don't, I can't remember. It was like on the way home or whatever. Then we did two shows in New York and then we're going out for like two and a half weeks or whatever. And it was me and Rachel and then her band. And one of the guys in her band was driving and sweetest. He also played on the single we just released. His name's Connor Kennedy. He's amazing and great fucking musician. And anyway, so he's on my record too, but he was driving and we were all excited. We just finished these two shows in New York and we're really hitting the road. And post pandemic, first time out, you know, everybody's super excited. We're like, this is going to be amazing. You know, this is going to be amazing. And he starts chewing gum and he like passes it. And I was like, you got to throw the gum out. You got to throw the gum out. He's like, oh my God. <laughs> Chew gum? <laughs> got to spit it out. I can't and I explain them as a funny thing. Look it up. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. So for me, uh, motorcycles, leaf blowers, I withdraw emotionally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> have you done any analysis on this since we've gone so uh, deep? No, it, I have not, but I know that, um, it's always been like that for me. I'll just feel this your little... sort of like internal, um, you know, I'll wither internally. I can, yeah, it's weird. It's a weird thing. Um, uh, you know, any kind of loud, yeah. Motorcycle fire engine, um Judas Priest no I don't. <laughs> <laughs> come on no. it's an invasion though because it's like it maybe it's a boundary thing for you because you can't do anything about it with sound boundaries like there's no you know it's the worst it also it's a full moon today it's a super moon full moon so you might be extra sensitive it's it's very possible yes um you know I'm curious about the idea <laughs> that you know, artists seem to find each other, which uh -huh. is like one of my favorite things is I love how artists, you know, you can move to a new town and you're an artist, you'll find the other artists or they'll find you. When you were, you know, the, the past is something we don't spend too much time on, but I, but I think it's important just to kind of talk a little bit about your story to, to talk about what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. um, did you find, did you have any trouble at all? Cause it doesn't seem like it finding artistic people. And then I do believe that human behavior is not that complicated. Were you also, your band was really positive people. Did mm -hmm. you also find the people that were um, like you as well, the, the unhealthy mm -hmm. and the healthy? And how did mm -hmm. you coexist between those two sets of people? It's mm -hmm. a good question. Uh, yes, I found the unhealthy people. <laughs> All of that? <laughs> Water seeks its own level. Um, yeah, I think I found the corroborators that would allow me to remain addicted, you know, because that was obviously my best way to cope with life. So yeah, I surrounded myself with those people. And then I was with these positive guys. Eventually, I mean, I hate to say it, but the, the negative influences won out. You know, it was a little bit of spiritual warfare and um, a certain amount of, you know, shifting code, like just like, hey, I'm this and then I'm that. There's there's always been a little bit of a schism in me. Like there there's always been this thing of like I was raised Lutheran and I think there's this tendency to want to be like really good. And I think there's also. um you know, just the, the thing we spoke about before the survival aspect of like trying to stay good means you stay quiet and stay in survival. 
but like everything, right? There's the shadow and um, without getting like Jungian on us or anything, but there, there's this whole other dark side that's trying to balance out this whatever, you know, you know, intention of, of puritanical um, light. And I don't know that either are the truth. You know, I mm. think it's something in between, but I, I, I also think that I was very limited in, I, I mean, we're coming out of, we're, let me just put it this way. We are entering into an age of hopefully non-binary thinking, not just in gender, but in subjects like this, where it's like, I'm this person, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a musician, or I'm good, or I'm bad, I'm in prison, so I'm bad, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor, so I'm good, you know, all that stuff, I don't think, I don't think that's actually the case. And more so than ever, I think people are willing to reveal that within themselves are multifaceted, um, personas and lots of ways to access um personality and um and their own life like what they what they want the expression of their life to be it doesn't have to be a name a label good or bad but back to your question i think i i just jumped back and forth you know when you met jeff buckley that was new york or la la what kind of a co-conspirator was he and what was your perception of him as a musician? Was it, were you in awe? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, he was not a co, he was only a co-conspirator in trying to help me make music. I mean, that was all he wanted to do. He was furious with anything else that I engaged in that took me away from that. He hated it. Um, he was extremely supportive. He, yeah, we have many arguments about my need to uh, experiment. He was not into it and um, was very frustrated with that part of me. Yeah. Mm. Because you guys did recordings together. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have a cassette about eight feet away in a drawer that's like unbelievable yeah holy cow yeah um yeah so he it's funny he saw he saw that in you and he knew that needed to come out and he saw that everything else was getting in the way of it yeah he was a very did you know him at all no i didn't he was very loving and um obviously brilliant yeah the first time I heard his music I I mean I just I'd never heard anything like it it was also on a cassette everything was on a cassette back then and he's like oh I got these demos if you want to hear I don't know if you care I'm like oh I care <laughs> and I listened and I was like uh never heard anything like this in my life before I mean I'd heard his dad sing um on vinyl but uh the kind of music that Jeff was making just on like you know four track situation was unlike anything I had heard at that time, the singing, the writing, the guitar playing, what a great guitar player he was. Um, and just a power and, you know, we can always romanticize those who have gone, but like, we all knew it 
when he was here too. It was like, it was extraordinary and from another planet. Um, he was very earthly, but he always, he, he was a channeler for sure. He had something else going on completely. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. Grace is one of those underwater experiences I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. And that's the crazy thing is when the demos that he played me back in LA, this is before he came to New York, those demos had that, you know, most demos are just a little eh, scrappy, whatever, but this, this totally took you underwater. It was, it, it sounded like a demo because it was, but it was a fully immersive experience. And yeah, totally immersive. That's the word because typically the scruff of a demo can take you out of something, but yeah, an immersive demo is really mm -hmm. something else. This might sound silly, but um, the Counting Crows, their demo floating around here in the early '90s was like that. It was really fully formed and completely I immersive. Unbelievable. I, yeah, I believe it. It was unbelievable. Um, and so you, you, from Ohio to LA, how did you end up in New York? Well, I had that moment that I talked about, the moment of of otherworldliness, grace. And um, I called my mother and I said, I'm dying. And she said, I know. And she said, come home and we'll fix it. And it's such a long story, Alex. It's such a crazy story, but I'll just say that it's such a crazy story. I ended up, first I had to get an ID to fly and you know I had no driver's license or anything like that. And I went to some like fake ID place in LA and there was a, a bird who incessantly sang somewhere over the rainbow while I was getting the ID made, like getting my picture taken. It was just- A bird? Like, yeah. In, <laughs> Which I thought the, was- It was in the place? Yeah, it was in the place. Just a guy with a camera, you know, cigarette making IDs. And then um, I got that ID and I went to, I went to Ohio. I went to Ohio. Then I went to New Jersey, Philadelphia, Philadelphia to a doctor mm -hmm. um, and had a quick opiate withdrawal thing my mother had seen him on Montel <laughs> and he lost his license because like 13 people died under his care or something it was it, it's so graphic and terrible I don't even want to talk about it so I went through that experience and then ended up this is so crazy ended up in a wheelchair with an eye patch because I was having seizures and double vision. I mean, it was just nuts. And Whoa. my friend Kevin made a painting of it, which is so amazing. I'll, I'll send you a picture of it. Um, and then I, I, um, I couldn't, I ended up in a psych ward <laughs> and they, there was this guy, his name was Dr. Collins and my sister got me in there somehow because she worked at the Cleveland clinic. So I was back in Ohio. They took me back to Ohio and I was in the psych ward and everybody kept coming in and then getting released. And I 
they kept keeping me there. And I was like, come on, man. He's like, you can sign out. Like you're an adult, like you can sign out, but you're really dangerous, like to yourself, like you're really dangerous. And I would like you to stay and we're going to figure this out. He was just a gentle soul. And there was something about him that I felt like he wasn't lying to me, you know, and I'd been in many hospitals where people were like, they'd say stupid shit. Like, you're such a pretty girl. You're such a young girl. Like, why are you doing this to yourself? You know, I mean, like if I had that fucking answer, I wouldn't be doing this to myself, you know, but he, and, and, but he just didn't really, he didn't really get into it. He just kind of, again, with like the frequency transmission, he kind of just held this energetic space for me to kind of start to reflect back onto myself in a way. And so I started asking myself questions like, what, what am I doing? Where am I going to go? Like what I, anyway, um, he eventually got me a spot in a halfway house in a town. I'm not making this up called Painesville, Ohio. I know. Wow. I know. And there was a woman there who would take in addicts and she had 10 years sober herself. And so there were like a bunch of us girls. And I always used to say, it's like, a like, um, Jerry Springer, God rest his soul, um, episode where like, just like pregnant crackheads, like beating each other up on the, I mean, it was just like nuts every day. And I wanted to die in there. And, um, and just something, something happened again. Like I had another otherworldly kind of expression in the room. And um, I was like, that's it, man. Thanks for showing me around here. It's got everything one would need to stay alive.
survived everything that I did up to that point. And so I, I suppose it was like sort of my last lifeline kind of feeling. And I had this sense that I always think like this little portal opened up and if I didn't jump through it, it would close again. And I knew that I had jumped through the portal and I, I needed to stay. And, and so I just was like, whatever, whatever I need to do. And then I just became really, I was a person who never listened to anyone, you know, at least in my teenage and adult years, like I just started doing my own thing and, and I had zero humility and, um, I didn't trust anybody. And I just started trusting people, you know, that some, some people in the world wanted good things for me. And so I started showing up for myself in a way that I never had before in terms of like my own, um, willingness to listen to other people and see like who had gone before me. I was really curious to see like sober people doing creative things because I didn't think that was possible. They were at that point, I felt like substances and creativity were inextricably linked somehow. They're not, but I thought they were, and I thought everything would be over, you know, in terms of like my ability to make things in the free way that I had up to that point. And I started to meet these people who were making beautiful things and doing beautiful things with their lives. And, and I got a lot of help from people who knew how to do it. And then my family started to show up for me. I mean, they had always been available to me. I just wasn't available to their help. But many of them, especially my siblings and my mom, my dad was passed by then. Um, but my my siblings really showed up and my mom really showed up in this really sweet way. And I stayed in the halfway house in Painesville for a while and then lived with my mom. And then I went to live with one of my sisters in New Jersey and then eventually, you know, made enough money to get an apartment in the city. And then I started meeting all these musicians in the city and then kind of grew from there. Did you get the feeling that you wouldn't have lived had you not turned this corner? Was it that dangerous? Oh my God. I definitely wouldn't have lived. I mean, the I tried to kill myself. So, and I'd OD'd and there were so many um, situations that I, I still can't believe I survived. They're too gnarly, honestly, to go into, but I, yeah, I was on a mission to completely annihilate myself. Yeah. That was the plan. That was the, that was the plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how that's a voice that you were listening to. I don't know if it was a voice as much as it was an unconscious force of like some calculation of unworthiness, um, unsuredness, unpreparedness for life. And 
um, it really, I didn't have, as they say, many tools for living. And so I relied on my own kind of grit, which was super scrappy and not well-educated and um, certainly not open to support. So it was um, a self-sufficiency of a terminal nature in a way. And I, um, yeah, so I was just kind of driven by this thing that that wanted me dead. I mean, you could easily, well, not easily, but I think there's many ways to sort of approach the analysis of it. And, um, you know, you can talk about the shadow self and, you know, the the extreme propensity for a stronger nature that is sometimes the, I don't like terms of dark and light, but in this case, the, the saboteur voice was so strong and resonant that that really um, took first place most of the time. And I was there for it. I mean, I was totally available for it. There's also, I have to say there's um, for me, and I don't know this is for everybody, but for me, there's great responsibility in that I have to take for my own life that is on the side of living, you know, like there's a lot I have to do in order to want to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And that takes a lot of work. <laughs> so, you know, less so now, now it comes more naturally because I have a true desire to live and I've, I've gathered enough evidence that my life is fueled by creativity now that infuses my impetus to breathe, you know? So I'm, I'm available for it in a way that I never was before. And I'm glad to hear you say that about creativity because I always feel that it's sort of a, an adolescent way of thinking in that, you know, chemicals unleash the creativity. Because in many ways, I think, it, I think that's a, like a phase you have to go through um you know mm -hmm. what I mean it's, it's almost like um <laughs> almost like thinking like I remember when I was every 15 year old boy in the 80s thought Jim Morrison was an amazing poet you know and then you <laughs> you know yeah. you hit 20 and you go eh, you know <laughs> okay but I mean you know great in in many ways but not really what you thought it's like a phase that you go through and I think that thinking of you know, you've got to drink or do drugs to be, to unleash the creative mind is kind of a terrific myth. I think it's an association that we made, you're right, based on a generational um, exposure, you know, like, like to break out of the suburban construct of like the 50s, like the Beats, who are amazing, you know, and then the 60s Jim mm. Morrison and, and the rock and roll and everything that was associated with drugs in a way like the pendulum sort of had to swing that far. It may have been there in a more subterranean way, but it be, it had to become expressed very strongly outwardly. And and I think for us to just to break out of a lot of that that perfection thinking or social construct stuff. But I, for me as a kid, I mean, there may have very well been an imprint in my mind that music was correlated with like substances, like they're, they're you know, just looking at, I remember looking at 
you know, album covers and, you know, just the, the, the way they looked, they were smoking and drinking their bottles in the pictures, you know, and like, I was like, Oh, that looks good. And, and all the teenagers, you know, when I was like eight, all the teenagers in my neighborhood, they were in bands and drinking and smoking pot and everything, taking pills. So that, that did sort of, it also, it indicated a, like a sense of freedom to me. And, and the truth is once I imbibed feeling like a very, um, a person sort of locked up once I started taking things and I felt that freedom, it was truthful for me that I, and, and it really did unlock a lot of things and stopped me from editing myself so much and Hmm. gave me an opportunity to associate with more free thinkers or so I thought, you know, and it did save my life. Like, I think if I hadn't, if I hadn't gone down that road, which is, you know, life-threatening on a daily basis, I don't think I would have been able to survive my own mind without it. So I almost needed it. You know, I needed to risk my life to save my life kind of thing. Right. It's almost like you had to pass through it. Well, I do believe I had to because I did. And I'm a, I'm a believer of like, my path is unfolding in a way that makes sense for me, for my, you know, if I choose to subscribe to that kind of thinking like I do I do think that every step I've taken in both sides of my life if you want to just put them in two halves like that have been absolutely instrumental in where I am today and for every note I sing honestly your music is it means so much to me I remember when you reached out to me years ago with the Ohio record yeah um I put it on and I was sort of like, what's happening? Like, it's just, it just was so powerful to me. Um, We were talking about going underwater and it felt like I was in this sort of submerged um, uh, city that was sort of, that had sunk and was sinking and would rise again. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved it. I just loved that album so much. And that's when you and I became, became friends and started to know each other. And the new work just builds off of that in this sort of like, I don't even know how to describe what you do. It's just so singular and so powerful and so mm. beautiful and and also terrifying in some ways too, right? Because it's dark. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a sort of um, kind of like gothic prairie element to it, which I love. <laughs> I just love it. And it also feels hopeful and it feels, it just feels like you've tapped into this world that, um that it's fun to hear you explore your way through um and it's it, and your music does feel very much like an experience for me um and i want everyone to know about you um yeah. <laughs> sorry for the long no the are you long. kidding me it's so nice <laughs> but <laughs> so nice. you know um when you are because i find in my in my poetry everything takes place in this mythic lynchian sort of surf town Mm -hmm. I don't always have entrance into that place, but when Mm -hmm. I'm in, I know I'm in and it's, it's rare and I'm grateful every time that they let me in and I hope I can come out with something cool. Mm -hmm. Can you access this world where your music takes place? Is it easy or is there a kind of wind up to get there? Do you sometimes get shut out? Do you like, how does that work for you in terms of creativity? Mm, Such an interesting question. And I want to ask the same of you actually, but um well I think I've entered it 
in multiple ways. There's the most magical way, which is my favorite and also terrifying. And that is where I do feel that I am in the company of spirits in some way. I've had some very literal, um, I mean, deliveries of music note for note and word for word from what I experience as a ghostly like presence from another realm in the room with me that has happened on a handful of occasions and I will never forget those moments and I will never forget those songs and they are with me always and I'm here for it when I'm not here for it though which is you know when my brain is pushing me out it really is um a methodology of committed practice and just being willing to sit at the instrument um, and work, you know, and just allow it to, uh, like, I, I'll feel an inspiration of an essence of something. I often see colors or images that instruct a vibe or yeah, like an emotion. And I sort of know the territory I'm so I'm being nudged toward. And then I really just start playing and listening. And it's it feels a little bit like sculpting, I think, because mm -hmm. you're just really shaping something slowly and carefully. And I have had fits, I mean, where it's just not coming, it's not working. It's, you know, I throw the books across the room. I cry like a baby. Jeff's terrified. He's like, okay, this is craziness. Um, and I, I just have to take a breath, re-enter and keep doing it or just give up for the day. But I think it's just sitting with it, you know? Yeah. But they usually, it comes together for me in terms of like lyrics and music. It all comes at once. It's rare that they're separate. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's that sort of confluence of the music and the words. I mean, there are times where I want so badly to get into that world. And that's almost a guarantee you're not going to be let in. You know, when you yeah. really are sort of like knocking hard at it. And mm -hmm. there are times where all we're all right with so much intention and I'll come back with nothing. And it just feels horrible I understand the feeling of wanting to cry or throw things across the room or mm -hmm. I totally understand that because it feels like you wasted your time and and you got denied and you feel kind of silly but you didn't waste your time you you it's that's part of the reps right that's part of the process is to do it and to come back with nothing is to learn something because I also know that there are things I won't allow into my work images words there's things that just don't not because they're they're wrong but because they don't they're wrong for what I'm doing they don't fit right mm -hmm. it's sort of yeah. it's sort of like handing a it's like taking a vampire to a baseball game you know it's like mm -hmm. it, it just they wouldn't it just doesn't it's incongruous you know such a mm. stupid example you know you know what I'm talking about where it's like, well I all I can think is that might be a really interesting <laughs> poem but yeah I mean yeah, I totally know what you're saying. Nothing is wasted. I mean, mm -hmm. I I have probably thousands of songs that, not complete songs, but bits of songs that will, maybe thousands is a, an exaggeration, but a large number of things that will not become songs. 
but it's more of like showing up for myself. It's more like, or my creative person and saying like, yeah, but I'm still here for you, you know? And I think Alex, like, at least for me, and part of the annihilation thing that has, has happened and continues to happen is really killing the fucking ego because, or the critic, you know, mm -hmm. like welcoming the critic who's there for protection or um, editing purposes or whatever. Like there's, there's a place for it, but where the, it starts to become the voice of what people will hear or what they'll think of it or what the audience, like that kind of thing, I cannot do. Like I'm not, I think there are some really skilled people, skilled musicians, skilled writers who can write from a place of thinking about what their audience wants and deliver in a very meaningful way. Maybe next life for me, that's mm -hmm. not the way, the way I do it. You know, I can't do it that way. I get too caught up in um, how I'm going to look or sound. And that's just, that'll take me so far off course. I've done it and it feels gross. I don't feel like I have integrity in, in what I'm doing. And to me, and I'm not even, you know, I have a lot of self-consciousness around my grammar, around my vocabulary, around, you know, the fact that I'm uneducated, you know, like all this stuff, but it's, it really comes down to making sure that even when I use you know, a preposition, or I'd say the, or of, or uh, like, does, is that really important? You know, is that extra or is it unnecessary? Does it help tell the story? Does it help paint the picture? And do you, most importantly, I think like, do I feel it when I say it? Do I feel something in that syllable? Like I kind of have to feel something in every syllable in order for it to go onto a recording. No wasted seconds. Uh-uh. It's mm -mm. too much of a gift. This whole thing, you know, like it makes me want to cry because I'm just, I can't believe that I even still have the desire to do it. You know, I'm not, I'm not a well-known person. I'm not like making a living from my music. I'm, it's hard. Like it's, I mean, it's not, you know, terrible, but it's, it kind of takes a lot of commitment at this stage to keep doing it and the very fact that I want to and every time I do a gig like we just did a gig in the city loading the gear driving down uh, we did a gig in Canada loading the gear you know and I'm like okay every time I do it I'm like okay maybe this one will be the one that says like okay that's enough like you're just gonna take I'm really into painting right now so like you're really you're gonna take painting classes and just settle into a nice job at the post office and that's it like you're just gonna like calm down and every time I'm like like good gig bad gig doesn't matter I'm like yeah I, I need to do that again and again and again <laughs> it's my it's my um connection it's always nice to know that there's a you know a post office um escape plan <laughs> but we're never gonna use it <laughs> you know <laughs> By the post office escape plan and vampire on the jumbotron could be pavement songs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It just occurred to me. Um, I used to think when I was younger, I would think like I would wind my way up to a good line or a good image. Mm. 
And I would think like, who cares if you waste two or three lines to get there? When you get there, it'll be worth it. And then as I got older, I realized I, I can I can no longer do that. Every I like what you're saying, because everything has to count. No wasted anything. It makes the process slower, right? Mm-hmm. Because the throwaway yeah. lines are easy to get to get. You can sort of build up to the to the other stuff without yeah. those. Um, it makes you more accountable. It definitely slows it down a little bit, but it, it, but it makes it more worth it. I think it's it's a, definitely a more refined version. I think of what we do because I feel the same way. No wasted anything. No, not no. nothing. Nothing's wasted. I can tell the way you write. Nothing is wasted. Yeah, Thanks. your writing yeah. is amazing. Yeah, and I and there's. Do you get into this where like um, I was working on something today, and this line kept coming, and I was so mad at it. I was like, that is so basic like I don't want that line but it kept forcing itself onto the page and it was almost like hey (laughs) just listen to me and put it down you know it may become something else but it was something like although I'll tell you what the line was it was um the the communication and the lies no the corporations and the lies and I was like no no fucking way. Am I saying that's so like, I get it. There's like, you know, I get the, the energy of it, but it just seemed so silly and so balanced. And I don't know, I don't, it's trite in a way. I, I'm going to reward. I mean, even saying it out loud, now, I'm like, no fucking way. Is that going to make it? <laughs> no, but it's trying to attach itself to something else though. And that's important. Right. That's right. Right. That's right. That's yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. It'll, no. it'll lead me there. Yeah. It'll lead you there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Do you find that you, because I find this, like, I don't live in the world that I write about, Mm. which is is weird because I think like, oh, this, I mean, there's two things. One, I always say that like, I'm much smarter as a, as a poet than I am as a person, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm out Mm -hmm. in the world, I'm like kind of a moron, but when I'm writing, I feel like a wisdom or a something different or a control um, so there's that. That's one thing. Also, I don't live in the world that I write about at all. Like that world is totally mythic. And um, I mean, I wish I did, but I don't. Do you find the same thing? Do you find that you write that this world that you've created, that are you living in it or is it different? Wow. So interesting. I, I think I live there. Mm. I do. I think maybe I do there. too. Now that I'm thinking that maybe I do too. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe. I think you must in some way or some part of you must. I mean, there we are, we are many things, you know? And I think that's part of the deal too, is like this idea that I am just this person who goes out into the world and goes to their her post office job. I don't have a post office job, by the way, but like, you know, but uh, you know, I teach tennis or whatever, you know, like I, whatever the thing I is. Like, and but inside of us, aren't there many mythologies? Aren't there many forces? Aren't there many landscapes? And and I think part of where I'm at right now, and I think I hear this in, in the conversation, the cultural conversation here and there as well, that like sort of allowing, allowing all these expressions to make themselves known is a really important thing. And I think we've been kind of locked up by what we think we should be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous to our health and certainly to our happiness. And I think it's dangerous in terms, I know it's dangerous in terms of oppression, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it also feels really good to not have an ego problem anymore. Because <laughs> I have, I definitely had one. I think, I think that I, I don't mean an ego problem like, like you know, about vanity. Ego problem in terms of what I thought a lot. I thought a lot about what people were going to think about me, and I stopped. Even the way that I conduct this show um, is a reflection of that, where it's not um, an ego-based show. And I think it, my younger self had I because I did radio as a young person. Had I hosted this show in 1994. Um, it would have been very ego driven and it's a it's a relief sandy to not be that person anymore yeah yeah i know what you're saying i also think though some of it is just age you know like we have something to prove and we're also trying to figure out who the fuck we are you know right. And so some of that means like you put on a little bit of a costume here and there. I mean, the picture you talk about, you know, that you like with me with the cigarette or whatever, it's like, yeah. that was all fucking ego, but it was also all truth. There was like, you know, and the show you would have done in the nineties or whatever, like it's all, it's all the truth of where you are. And there's a sweetness to it, I think, you know, an earnestness to it. Yeah. But you're right in, in that, like, being able to free ourselves from what we think we should be is really where we can do our best work. And I think people are catching on to that much sooner now. And I think children are being raised with a little bit more of that, you know, individuality, even like a lot of the schools now, you know, they're not like, I don't know what kind of school you went to, but you know, at least up here in Woodstock, they're just like, you know, go sit in the woods for six hours if that's what you want to do. <laughs> it's beautiful. Like, it's really beautiful. What do you want to do? You know, programs being created so that they can follow their path. You know, my, one of my best friends, her kid is like, I don't know what I want to do, but he's just, he's homeschooled and he's doing great. And, you know, we didn't have that. We were like, you're going to be a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer, or, you know, postal worker. <laughs> postal worker. Yeah. The, uh, everyone's going to think this podcast is sponsored by the United States Post Office, and I promise you it's not. Um, can you, one of the things about getting older is I have found that it's hard to make friends. It's hard when you're older to meet people the way you used to meet people. And it's probably for a myriad of reasons. It probably has a lot to do with everyone's life as sort of, you know, there's a, they're on a certain path. They have a certain rhythm. Um, they have proclivities. They have maybe we were more flexible when we were younger and there's more opportunities. It's hard to meet people. I want to just take this moment and talk about how cool I think it is um, that your friendship with Rachel Yamagata is mm -hmm. very inspiring to me. Mm -hmm. um, I love that you guys are friends. I love that you guys just love each other so much and that you're <laughs> in, so in tune with each other. Can you speak a little bit about that friendship? Because I think it's important to mention. And can you talk about how that friendship has been um, inspirational for you as a creative person. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because she's instrumental in where I am today in terms of staying buoyant in this like sea of doubt. Um, I met Rachel, I can't remember if we talked about this last time, so forgive me, but I met her, her partner came to see a show I was in and it was, you know, up. it was like our first show up here upstate when we moved up here and he, Pete and he went home and told her about the show. And 
somehow we got in touch and she said, yeah, Pete doesn't like anybody, you know, and he liked you a lot. So I want to meet you kind of thing. And so we had coffee and, and I was asking her advice and everything. And, um, she's so she's okay. So first of all, I don't know where to start. She's so powerful. She's, she's one of the most ferocious performers I've ever seen in my life. I hadn't seen her before. I really didn't know a lot of her music before I had known, I knew her name. I knew she was very popular. Jeff, my husband and creative partner said, oh yeah, we got to meet Rachel. Like she's when we first moved up here. And then I kind of forgot about it. I was like, oh yeah, he played me something. I was like, oh my God, yeah, she's amazing. And I kind of forgot about it. Then this whole thing happened. And she very soon said, um, do you want to open up for me on a couple of gigs? Which first of all is like super generous. And this was a couple of years ago before this last tour I did with her. And so I, she had like two opening slots somewhere. I can't remember a couple of cities. And so I, I went and I opened up for her, but the way she has encouraged me every step of the way, she's, she's constantly thinking about ways that people can hear me. And I'm like running for the, you know, I'm like hot, sticking my head in the dirt. I'm like, please stop, you know, <laughs> but she's, that's how generous she is. I mean, this person can be thinking about herself nonstop. She's got plenty. She has a million people who want to talk to her, want her to do music with her, want to have her score movies, write musicals, etc. And she is constantly thinking about other people so much so that during the pandemic, so she has this house that has a little bit of land around it up here. And she single-handedly basically bought a bunch of tables, bought a gigantic movie screen, planted a garden, and I mean single-handedly, and would have everybody over to like social distance so we could watch movies together, we could eat together. It was like, and she's constantly thinking about everybody else's well-being. She's phenomenal. So in terms of, yeah, and there have been times where I just have doubted so much what I'm doing. Like, what the fuck? Sandy, seriously, give it up, give it up. And she'll be like, no, you're not giving up. You're not allowed to give. She'll, I mean, yeah, I don't know what to say. She's just, she's phenomenal. Yeah. Are you guys, um, like, you'll be texting each other throughout the day? Like, is she, is she a really yeah. constant presence? Yeah, we joke and say that we don't even need to text anymore because we're speaking telepathically. Like we we literally, we don't need to talk. It's funny. Um, yeah, there was something else I was going to say. I don't know. Oh yeah, this <laughs> she'd probably kill me. You might have to edit this out. But okay. at the last, on our last tour, it was so remarkable watching her perform every night. She smokes cigarettes and drinks you know whiskey like she's like she's hardcore uh, if I smoked and drank like Rachel does I mean I could maybe eke out three notes like seriously at this stage of my life Rachel can smoke a pack of cigarettes drink a couple whiskeys and get on stage and blow your mind it's phenomenal and I'm like that's how I know she's truly meant to do this. Like she's truly in her calling. 
She's so ferocious. Yeah, she's writing a new record right now. She asked Jeff and I to produce something. So we're working on a song for her, which is great and a total honor, but yeah. More, yeah, I love more. her. I love her too. She's yeah. she's just she's remarkable. Yeah, um, we have to get her on here. I'd love to get her on here. Yeah, yeah. Um, that'd be would be really cool. Um, I love. I just love what you do, and I think that I wonder. This is this is sort of my a question I've been thinking about, and I I think about it a lot. So getting to be the age that we are, yes. um, I started realizing that that all the things I wanted to write which I thought I had all this road in front of me um, feels more finite than it's ever felt. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of like the, you need to get on it. Like let's start, start producing at a much higher rate. Don't start thinking, Oh, I'll write that book of essays um, sometime in the future. You better do it now because you know, life is short. Mm -hmm. And as you get older, it seems shorter. Has mm -hmm. that made you um, think about, you know, this, the music you've written that you haven't released, the stuff that um, is coming down the pike, does it make you want to release more material or how does, how, what's your attitude towards that? Yeah, I would say like after I turned probably like 45, I started getting, honestly, I, I became more anxious about other things I wasn't making. Like uh, visual things, art, um, working with metals, thing, other things that I like to do in terms of visual arts, painting, um, sewing, you know, things like that. I started to feel like, oh my God, I time's running out and how am I going to have enough hours to learn how to do all this stuff? So for a period of time, I was getting up really early and trying to do it, like fit as much as I could in every day. And I started wearing myself out, to be honest, but I did make a lot of stuff, which was really cool. Um, but the music, yeah, I guess so. I think, I think I've kind of surrendered to that. First of all, I can't force my pace with writing, like with music, um, composing or recording. Like it has such a life of its own and mm. it always, even this record, Entelechy, it's like, I mean, it was written years ago, like five years ago, and it took a long time to record. Well, not that long to record. It took a while to mix for various reasons. We, it, it could have been ready years ago. We decided to remix, remaster, re this, re that. There were some songs that were going to be on it that I decided not to be on, not to, you know, to take them off. They didn't fit. Um, and then the pandemic. So it's like, it, it's almost like that is dictated on its own. Mm -hmm. And in terms of writing the same thing, like I can't really write any faster than I do because of the thoughtfulness that aforementioned, you know, integrity for each word. Like you just can't, it just has to be the pace it's going to be. Do I feel an urgency? I think I feel more like I'm in a rocking chair on my front porch, which I don't have either, but that's the vibe. And that the rest of my days will be spent doing this in some way. And that's all I need to know. If I just know that it's okay. My problem is sharing it. Mm. My problem is getting it out into the world. And this is where I really need other people because I don't 
I, I really mean this honestly. I don't, I think it's important, but I also don't think about it. Like I, I think about the process of it, of writing. And once I'm done, I'm just done. So the fact that I met you is kind of a crazy needle in a haystack because I finished when I leave Ohio and I loved it so much, but I'd already started writing something else and started painting. And my friend, I don't know if you know Chris Moore. Do you know him from Negative Approach? He was the drummer in Negative Approach. Wait, I, and what, what did he do after Negative Approach? His own thing. He's been doing his own thing for a while. Just Chris Moore. I do. I know the name. Okay. He's, he's an amazing writer, musician, but he, I was like, I don't know what to do. And he's like, you should, I have a list of people you should send the record to. You should send it to this list. And he gave me a printout of a list and it had like 50 names on it or something. And I just, I went like this, closed my eyes and, and landed on your name. No way. Yes. And then, and I was like, okay, I'll mail it to this guy. I mailed it to you. And then I mailed it to one other person. And I got such an amazing response from you. And then I got a really amazing response from the other person. And that was it. That's the only promotion I ever did. I got on Spotify for a minute. I hated it. Took everything off of Spotify. I was like, this is terrible. Took it all off of Spotify. I mean, I just didn't do anything. I would play gigs, but I mostly just kept writing. It just kept working. And then when I finished Entelechy, and there were so many amazing people on it, and Jeff is, and Rachel, both Jeff and Rachel, they're like my biggest cheerleaders. They're amazing. And, and they're like, Sandy, seriously, you gotta, you gotta get this out there. So they're helping me, you know, and you're helping me by just reaching out. It's so sweet. So um, you can see I'm more engaged now on social media. And I just got back on Spotify, like, I don't know, two weeks ago or something. So that's, that's happening. And you know, I've got mixed feelings about the whole thing, but I, if I had my way, I think it would just be live performances, you know, being with mm -hmm. people and the pandemic really, I think also just put a bullet in that obviously. So, you know, I had every excuse in the world to not share. Well, it, it did. And it's so great because the people who are listening to this conversation right now and meeting you for the first time, um, are going to sort of make up this new audience that that you'll have is are, will your music be available on Bandcamp are you, are you gonna do something like that that seems yes good. sorry it is on Bandcamp I did get that together so yeah it is on Bandcamp I like Bandcamp yeah it's got a nice vibe Bandcamp's cool yeah. I know Spotify is evil but I but you know sometimes it's a necessary evil just for exposure I don't know what's evil anymore I mean I thought it was I had a little bit of a Joe Rogan thing okay I'll just say that and then um I yeah, I've got some, I got some feelings about streaming for sure, but I'm also over it. I'm like, you know, I have to work for a living. Like I, I, I have to support this, you know, and, and if this, I think ultimately I just want to be with people in my music. My music wants to be with people. It's made that it's made it known to me for sure. Like this writing, this record has this record is so much bigger than me. It so has nothing to do. With, I know people say that, oh, but it really, the way it feels coming through my heart has zero to do with me. I feel like I just happened to be standing in the right place when the force came through or sitting at the piano. And it, it, 
I just happened to be in that spot and it came through. And so I, I definitely feel a different responsibility to this record than I ever have before. I think when I leave Ohio was, it was very powerful. And I was in so much grief that I had to, I had to somehow transmute that, you know, like I had to do something with that pain and that's what that record was. And usually, you know, when I write deeply or, or, you know, with a, with a profound hand or whatever, it's because I'm in so much pain and this record, I was not in pain, which was very interesting for me to like have this kind of force come through where I wasn't, I mean, there are a few songs on there, you know, where I was definitely hurting, but, um, and I had to do something with those feelings, but for the most part, this force that came through me was, it was like almost saying to me, this isn't about you at all. This is mm. really about, and when I leave Ohio, it felt like it was a lot about, you know, my own pain. Yeah, the new record feels bigger. It feels like it has yeah. more of a worldview, whereas Ohio feels like picking spikes out of out of a very specific heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I love it. Look, I love what you do. I think you're the greatest. And I just, I want everybody to know about your stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that you did this with me. And thanks for talking for, for so long and and um, and opening up as much as you have. I really appreciate it. And um, I just want everyone to be in this world that you have spun. And because it's just such powerful, beautiful. I mean, it's it really is truly mesmerizing music where you can't, it almost feels weird to we're going to play two songs here on the show um at this point we've already played one um and it feels weird almost to take it out of the context it's such a song cycle so it feels weird to like pull it out but um but we do what we have to do yeah you're so generous alex i'm very grateful it's really wonderful speaking with you and you and you'll come back right Oh, for sure. First, we'll get Rachel on here and then I'll come back. Okay, very cool. Ask <laughs> Rachel so if it's okay that we've talked about her drinking and smoking and then we'll, <laughs> we'll keep that in or we won't. She'll probably be like, yeah, whatever. But she's also, I should say this, she's also one of the most spiritually in tune people I've ever met. Like, and I have to, this is important. My brother was sick. I mentioned this to you on the telephone the other day, was really sick the last many months. And I thought I was going to lose my mind because I was consumed with thoughts for him and like, and my own attempts at healing him from a distance, you know, I was like, whatever, pull out all the stops, you know, so I'm going to call in all the magic. And, um, and I was doing so every day. We all were, my sisters and I formed like a circle, which circle, but anyway, so I, um, I was doing everything I could and I had depleted myself to such a degree. I was losing a lot of weight and I was just feeling kind of sick every day and really exhausted. And without having to text Rachel, she would say, you know, I'm here. You're not alone. Like she would just send me these things. You're not alone. I'm here. And I'd say, meet me at the field. And there's this field over here and we'd go walk in the field. And some of it, we just walk in silence, but she would energetically hold me up like it was really powerful and there's something about her that's so connected to the force of nature she is like mother earth in a way she's so I I need you to meet her um and 
it, in some ways, she is the reason I'm even able to have this conversation. Not that I would have died, but that I would have been so depleted at this stage. But she's, yeah, she's, she's deep. She's it's cool. Deep. You guys live about 10 minutes away. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. So, I know. It's so amazing. So right. cigarettes and drinking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But there's also like, that sounds like <laughs> one thing, but like, there's also this whole other thing to her that is unlike anybody I've ever met. She sounds marvelous. And I, and your friendship just it, vicariously, it's just so nice to hear about that, that, that it exists because it sounds like you guys are like, um, you could almost be 10 years old, maybe by the field with the 10 yeah, minutes yeah, away. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very sweet. Um, it is like that. We talk incredible. about aliens and ghosts and things. And yeah, and I, it's funny that you say like meeting friends at this stage in life, because a couple of years ago, I was like, that's it. Like no more new friends. Like, I don't, I don't like, I, it's just not going to happen. Everybody right. is too late. Like, and yeah, then you, you know, then someone comes along, just wins your heart. Yeah, I know. I want some new friends too. Um, I believe it can happen. Um, well, you're the best. And I'm so happy that we defied power outages and um, and we made this happen. And, and thank you so much. I want to meet Moses next time. I was going to show you Saffron, my cat, but he ran away after. Oh, where is he? Yeah. I've dreamt about cats the last two nights. Really? Yeah. What color? Um, well, the first night... Uh, the cats were sort of like orangey kind of tabby, but longer hair. And then last night, the cat, there were a couple of cats, but this one particular cat was a, like a, like a charcoal brown color. And it was, it was holding onto my leg for dear life. Mine is orange. So that's funny uh, you say that. Uh, I also had a dream two nights ago of a red fox. Is that good or bad? What do you, what do you that's think? That's good. It, was it one fox? One fox. That's a very good omen. That's really? Good. Yes. If you had had a dream, well, according to Native um, Americans, but if you had Native Indians, if you had had a dream about multiple, like a den of fox, I think it's called, maybe den, a kit, I don't know, a lot of them, it wouldn't have been good. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> That's not good. But one is good. One is good. All right. So one dream, Fox, one brilliant album, yours, and one wonderful conversation, Sandy Bell. Thank you so much. You are the best. And and we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. You're an angel. Thank you so much, Alex. really is the best. Sandy Bell. I love that conversation. I love her album. And you know what? I asked her and she explained it to me and I practiced it and I still mispronounced her album. I overpronounced it. What was I doing? I was overdoing it. I got, uh, I got a little intimidated by a big word and I, uh, I turned it up too, too much. The actual pronunciation of her album is IntelliKey. That's the correct pronunciation. I was trying to get all fancy and Greek sounding and, you know, I wanted to impress everybody. And I made an idiot of myself. 
by mispronouncing her album throughout the entire show. Um, and Teleki is how you do it. My producer has chastened me uh, for not doing my homework. I did my homework. I just couldn't remember my homework. That happens. That does happen, doesn't it? Well, it kind of just did. And Teleki, sandybell.com. Go there. Buy the album. It's available on Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp. That's sandybell.bandcamp.com. You can get some vinyl of Enteliki. It's a beautiful cover. It's a beautiful album. Buy two. Buy three. You're going to wear it out. You're going to want all your friends to have it. Just buy ten. Buy ten. Keep two for yourself because you're going to totally wear that thing down. Give eight out to all the people that you love the most in the world. Good strategy? All right. There's our plan. Follow me on what's left of Twitter. Is it X? Is it Twitter? Is it X Twitter? I'm still there. Um, there's not much that's going on that feels wholesome, but nevertheless, at Ember's Editor is where you can find me on that apparatus or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Don't forget to check out bombshellradio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick and Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. All the friends that you bought the Enteliki album for, tell them, here's an album, here's a podcast, what more do you need from me? What a good friend I've turned out to be, is what you should say. See how that goes. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Olivia Lumen from Sandy Bell's absolutely marvelous album, Enteliki. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers the Podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio.
Just who 